Welcome to the podcast series On Air, the podcast of the Air community with a special focus on the clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. In this series, we will look at how repertoires of TNB cell receptors are currently used in diagnostics. We will also discuss different opportunities where repertoires can be a great addition and the reasons why we're just not quite there yet. The podcast series is supported by the Antibody Society, which aims to bring together everyone working with antibodies. You can find more information about the Society on the website antibodysociety.org. Hello everyone and welcome. Today with us for the third episode of On Air, we have Anton Langerak, Professor and Head of Laboratory Medical Immunology at the Department of Immunology at the Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Hello, Ton. Hello. Nice to be here. We had something else planned for today, but calendars got in the way, so I also want to thank you, Ton, for, for joining us on, on this relatively um, short notice. The episode is hosted by me, Ulrich Sterfbo. And me, Qingding. Hello, everyone, and welcome. So, Tan, uh, one of the aims of this podcast is to show the diversity and skills that come together in the study of adaptive immune receptor repertoires, or AIR for short. Uh, can you start off uh, by telling us a little bit about your background, such as how you got where you are and how you became interested in AIR? Yes, sure. Um, I'm actually a immunologist by training, and I was specialized as a medical immunologist, which is a lab specialist in our country. Um, so that means I'm very much interested in um, understanding and applying immunology in the context of diagnostics. And for a very long time, actually since my first postdoc, I've been interested in, in immune repertoire analysis, or AIR as, uh, as you call it. Um, which has always been the, uh, the red line in my, uh, my whole career ever after. I also see that you are an active member of Euroclonality. Can you tell us a bit about, about the society and its mission? Yes, so Euroclonality actually started uh, when I did my first postdoc here uh, also in Rotterdam um, uh, based on a grant that we got from the European Commission. Uh, one of the programs at that time was called the Biomed program, and so we started as a Biomed 2 uh, consortium, uh, and our aim was to um, work on um, optimization of PCR-based clonality detection in lymphoproliferations. Uh, and when that project was finished, we actually uh, had worked so nicely together in the consortium that we all decided that we wanted to go uh, on and work together. And so uh, we renamed ourselves into the Euroclonality Consortium. And building on what we had done in the original um, uh, grant uh, project, we, we further worked on uh, applying the, the tools that we had developed and also uh, giving um, uh, support to the diagnostic community in terms of education and, and diagnostic consultation service, for example. Okay. Is that different than the uh, between the Euroclonality NGS versus the non-NGS version? Yeah, it's slightly different uh, because the Euroclonality group as such was a, uh, um, a direct uh, follow-up of the original uh, consortium based on this grant, uh, which started in 2004 or something. And then after several years, we realized that 
what we had done was very uh, nice, but that uh, meanwhile the world had moved, new technologies were introduced, um, and so the NGS technology, um, that's also what, what uh, came across our uh, activities, uh, and so we decided in 2012 or something to build a group within Europeanality that would focus on NGS essays. I see. And so, so we also included um, groups from outside Europeanality that had experience in certain uh, specific applications, like in minimal disease testing um, or uh, prognostication in CLL, for example. So we included other teams, uh, but the basis is indeed from, from Europeanality and, and we are a working group within Europeanality, so to say. Okay. And, and what's the primary focus of this specific subgroup? The focus of the Eurocanality NGS um, subgroup was to um, develop, standardize, and validate NGS-based immunogenetic assays for all kinds of diagnostic applications, ranging from detecting clones, um, studying repertoires, but also uh, minimal disease monitoring after treatment. I see. And, and is this uh, for a specific disease or open to multiple diseases? Um, we are concentrating on, on lymphoid malignancies because there, of course, the immune repertoire uh, is a direct reflection of the, the actual cell. Uh, we've considered over the years to broaden our, our expertise also maybe to solid tumors uh, and to the immune uh, response to these tumors, but so far we've mainly concentrated on the, the lymphoid malignancies themselves uh, and worked on that um, in, in our group. Okay. Are those limited to just leukemias or also lymphomas? Well, it's leukemias and lymphomas and also myeloma, so it's, it's really broad and it's, it's not the, only the um, acute leukemias but also the chronic leukemia, so it's uh, the whole lymphoid uh, part of the uh, uh, malignant uh, immune system. So that's very much into your um, so your research area, so I've, I found that you uh, one of your interests is, is chronic lymphocytic leukemias. Um, and can you tell me a bit more what characterizes this disease? Yeah, you're right. CLL is, is a disease close to my heart. I've been working there in this area for a long time. And um, it's a disease which is um, uh, known as a kind of indolent form of leukemia as compared to the, or as opposed to the acute leukemias, which are much more aggressive. But I think um, over the years, last 10, 15 years, much more insight into the biology and the clinics of this disease has um, uh, identified uh, several subgroups showing that it's much more heterogeneous than initially thought. If you look from it from the perspective of, uh, let's say, the morphology or the phenotype of the cells, it seems quite homogeneous, but actually Biologically speaking, if you go into um, into genetic aberrations and also in, in clinical um, course uh, presentation, then it's much more heterogeneous. And I think that's where the interest comes from, to try and figure out how we can define subgroups uh, which have different prognoses, which require different therapies, uh, which are in need of therapy uh, versus the ones that are more on a watch and wait um, regimen. So, um, I think there's much uh, gained over the last years, but still also much to be done in order to uh, make those distinctions much better. So how does BCR sequencing fit into to figuring out this heterogeneity that's there? Yeah, BCR sequencing has come in uh, the late 90s. There's two seminal publications in the field. 
that have introduced a concept where the CLL could be broadly divided into two groups, one being um, um, annotated as the mutated CLL group and the other one as the unmutated CLL group, and that refers not to the genetic aberrations, but really to the mutation status of the immune globulin receptor um, loci. Um, and so the unmutated group, the ones that haven't undergone such somatic hypermutations, they are known as the poor prognostic group, uh, whereas the more favorable group is the one that has undergone the somatic hypermutation. So the PCR sequencing has been, from that time onwards, a very central test uh, in order to make that big distinction for um, prognostication. Uh, and it has also been recognized um, that probably also uh, the choice of therapy could be um, based on um, on this distinction, such that now in the international guidelines, um, this is really considered to be an important test to be done before treatment is started. Which kind of the technical challenges are there to this um, distinction between the, the mutated and unmutated? phenotypes of the of the CLL? You mean clinical challenges in terms of the BCR sequencing? Yeah, or in yeah. general? Uh, in terms of BCR sequencing. BCR so. sequencing, yeah. So um, I think much has been solved over the years in terms of much more standardization of protocols and also interpretation, uh, thanks to the uh, um, great work of uh, uh, European Research Consortium on, on CLL called ERIC. Uh, which has uh, produced many standardized protocols and, and recommendations for, for interpretation. I think very important has been um, to also work on the um, bioinformatics, especially immunoinformatics, related to um, correct annotation of genes and making this uh, exact um, estimation of the somatic hypermutation uh, number, because that's a um, uh, clear uh, thing that needs to be done. Um, it needs to be um, identified how much mutations there are. It needs to be translated into a percentage um, uh, germline identity of the V-gene. And uh, a distinction is based on a 98% cutoff. So you need to be very accurate uh, to be sure that you're classifying your uh, case in the right, uh, right group, so to say. So you need a really good sequence, um, reference sequence of, of the V genes. Yeah. So how does Correct. this germline sequence definition, how well is this done across different uh, population groups? That's a very interesting point. I think we have so far uh, concentrated a lot on CLL cases that have been um, studied in, in parts of the world where not all... Um, different backgrounds have been uh, represented in a uh, balanced way. Let's put it like that. I'm not saying that, that it's completely um, focused on, on, let's say, the more Western uh, countries, but uh, I guess if, if this needs to be brought into other parts of the world, there's much to be done on, on correct germline uh, polymorphism identification uh, in the general population to, to have a good reference. So, and beyond this mutational profile of the BCR, um, there's also different V genes that are found in uh, unrelated 
patients. Um, can you tell me a bit about this? Because that I found quite interesting. Yeah, that's correct. That's a uh, concept that that uh, was uh, introduced later on by studying um, in collaborative efforts many, many CLL cases. Uh, we started to realize that um, whereas against the background of the normal VDJ recombination where you wouldn't expect uh, two independent uh, cells to come up with a almost identical VCR, that uh, in groups of CLL patients we, we um, saw that this was the case. Um, so um, those were referred to later on as uh, stereotypic cases with a stereotypic receptor which is defined as a, um, well, very or almost identical receptor based on um, usage of the VD and J genes, but uh, especially also the CDR3 length and composition. Um, and the concept here is that those uh, cases probably reflect um, a, a positive selection of certain CLL uh, receptors, CLL BCRs, um, either because they um, are antigen stimulated, um, or, and that's an even newer concept, um, there's also an idea that um, certain of these stereotypic receptors actually do not recognize antigen, but rather uh, recognize cross-recognize cross each other. So there's auto-aggregation of VCRs on the CLL cells, which provides the uh, activation signal to the, to the cell itself without any antigen coming um, into um, into uh, the picture to uh, to activate itself. So it's really the cross um, recognition of the BCRs um, on the cell surface of that individual cell that uh, delivers an, an, an signal to the uh, activation signal to the cell. So stereotypy um, is biologically quite interesting, but it's also clinically meaningful because we've seen over the years that, for example, in the more favorable prognostic groups, so the mutated CLLs with the somatic heart mutations, that you can identify subgroups of stereotypic um, CLL cases with a uh, stereotypic BCR, which do clearly more um, poorly than the, the general mutated group. So I think based on this broad distinction into the two groups, there's more uh, that is also not only biologically interesting, but also clinically um, meaningful that we uh, are probably going to uh, expand on in the, in the coming years and further. And how in practice the, has all this, this sequencing uh, of, the, of the B cell receptor impacted the CLL community, so from, from both patient and physician perspectives? Yeah, I think very much because um, um, this, this uh, concept of the prognostic uh, subgroups has been quite well uh, accepted. The stereotypic um, subgroups within the two main categories is still something that uh, is, is more in a research context, although clinicians also um, are getting more convinced about the added value of certain of these stereotypic groups. Um, and so the, the whole um, idea of knowing all these sequences for prognostication, I think, has has landed. Um, and on top of that, of course, uh, it also allows you to follow the patient with a very specific uh, fingerprint for the um, uh, leukemia if patients are being treated. So the minimal disease monitoring 
has also um, been introduced now in CLL. It has been known longer time in, in other leukemias, like in ALL. Um, myeloma is also quite uh, established, but also in CLL, it's getting more and more attention uh, and, and translates now from um, being used as um, as a surrogate um, for um, success of a therapy into uh, potentially um, a marker that one could use to guide uh, next decisions in, in uh, therapeutic uh, approaches being if it's, if it's an undetectable level of uh, MRD uh, uh, treatment might stop or if it's uh, still too high then uh, treatment might be continued or, or changed uh, to uh, get deeper remission for example. So yes, the impact has been very big, I think, in, in CLL. And, and much of that has been based on the Sanger sequencing initially, uh, because when it started late 90s, it was Sanger sequencing based. And gradually what we now see that is transforms also into the next-gen sequencing protocols where, of course, um, much more information can be gained, but it also comes with, um, well, certain pitfalls and um, biological challenges that we have to tackle now because uh, we all of a sudden see additional uh, dominant clonotypes popping up and well we have to figure out what the meaning of that is is that additional CLL clones or is this the normal immune response in the background that we're looking at um, I think so NGS technologies come with uh, of course um, much more easy way of working much more uh, high throughput way of working, but also with um, well, certain interpretation problems, I would say, that we have to tackle now and, and, and find uh, find out how we should be dealing with it. Yes, yeah, so you, you actually have a, a really interesting paper uh, coming out in the journal Blood, which is looking at uh, or utilizing the sequencing um, of B cells within CLL patients, but you're looking at it some 20 years prior to their prognosis. Um, it, was this paper based off of the Sanger or the NGS? Uh, that paper was based on um, uh, NGS. Okay. Um, so what we did here, uh, we were very lucky to get access to a population cohort uh, in, in Europe where um, uh, like 100,000 um, people are followed. Um, over time, and they have been sampled at some point when they were in a kind of, well, let's say, healthy state. Um, so without knowing what what their follow-up would be, and so the registry has very accurately dem uh, documented what uh, disease uh, those persons would develop in the end. And so we selected um, cases that finally developed CLL. Um, and went back to the original sampling way before their CLL was diagnosed. Um, and so in most individuals, we had a single uh, sample, a pre-diagnostic sample, uh, and that could be close to the diagnosis uh, or it could be much longer way. And by having a nice series of cases and a, a matched set of controls that we matched for um, age, um, for the length of their follow-up, for gender, um, we could identify in the cases that finally developed the CLL um, chronotypic shifts in the Ig repertoire in the pre-diagnostic sample that showed a clear dominance of the chronotype, 
And in those cases where we were able to compare that to the actual diagnostic material, we could also see that this was a, the, the identical clonotype that we already saw way before. And, and way before means that we even saw now um, shifts in the repertoire that were um, prior to the occurrence of AP lymphocytosis. Because in CLL, it's well known that, that uh, lymphocytosis can be present years before the actual disease um, is, is uh, clinically um, present, uh, and that's called uh, monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis. It means a monoclonal set of B-cells, which is um, simply uh, in numbers higher than one would expect. Uh, but, but in the um, study that we did, we could also identify cases based on the chronotypic BCR uh, that were even before that clear lymphocytosis. So really pushing back the, um, in, in, in time the period of a uh, pre-diagnostic uh, um, detection of the, the CLL. Yeah. Do you think um, BCR sequencing or AIR will uh, provide better early detection for these NBL patients to uh, help because I believe right now they're basically in this wait and see kind of pattern. So I think yes, uh, we, we can surely, uh, if we use those methods, uh, detect such clones earlier. Question is, what do you do with it? Um, and so what is the clinical impact of that? So our study was not so much meant to really be translated directly into, um, into clinical practice to screen everybody uh, in order to find persons who might have a uh, clone uh, because um, there's no action on such clones. Um, CLL patients are starting to be treated uh, only when they have clinical complaints and when there's a need for treatment. So if you would um, take the moment of detecting such shifts in the repertoire as a starting point for treatment, then you would have to have a treatment which really uh, would give benefit to the individual, and that's not the case at the moment. So I think this whole study um, at the moment is, is more of a biological study showing how long before actual um, overt CLL, um, this clone can already be there. But what we're trying to do is to translate this detection into uh, situations where um, we're not going to screen a whole population, but rather would like to uh, have a possibility to screen patients at risk. So it's known um, that certain lymphomas develop in the context of um, certain uh, conditions, um, especially conditions where the immune system is, is, is blocked or is deficient like in primary immune deficiencies or in people that get transplants, for example, that are under immune suppression. So it would be interesting to, to translate what we've seen now in the um, CLL study to such uh, patients to see whether there uh, the concept also holds true that you can detect way before the disease really um, shows up uh, clinically. Uh, because that would potentially be a much earlier detection in a group which is relevant to, to check and to screen. Um, and then again, of course, uh, you need to understand if there's possibilities to start treating those patients earlier. But given the um, sometimes quite aggressive diseases 
lymphomas that those patients develop, I think it's, uh, if I talk to the clinicians that are involved, it's really um, something they think is interest, interesting to do, to start working on um, new therapies way earlier than uh, when the disease really uh, is there. I see. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware that uh, there was an association of immunosuppressants and having an increased risk of developing these lymphoproliferative diseases. So you're saying that in, are these patients also more of the mutated and unmutated subtypes or are they a completely different classification to the healthy or sort of more normal population? Well, um, the immune suppression um, phenomenon, I think that relates more to the transplant patients. So that's a little bit uh, apart from, from the CLL story. I'm, I'm not sure whether we, we simply have uh, data for that. We haven't studied it. I'm not sure whether immune suppression could play a role in CLL development as well. But I'm, I'm trying to, to translate the concept that, we, um, that we've seen in the CLL um, study into um, actionable, um, relevant patients group at risk. And, and one of them could be the post-transplant um, follow-up of those patients, given that they have a quite high chance of developing lymphoma under their immune suppression. So how would you practically do this? So would you track the patients over time and see how are the, the dynamics of the, of the repertoire changing? Or how could one do this? Yeah, I think that's that's a good question because uh, just having one measurement in time um, will that be enough to understand that there is something coming up which might last still for several years, for example. No, you're right. I think the way we want to approach that is to um, show that uh, this this consist that there is consistent detection of that PCR clonotype. First of all, and also ideally that indeed you see some kind of dynamics showing that it's increasing. So that makes you um, more um, comfortable with the idea that this is indeed a process that uh, doesn't go away. And, and uh, what's more, that even probably uh, becomes uh, more prominent. Um, and of course, it needs to be proven, the whole concept in, in prospective uh, cohorts uh, to know how much uh, or how many cases we have where, where these dynamics would not lead to a lymphoma in the end, uh, or whether it would be exclusive, uh, exclusively happening in, in the cases where lymphomas do, uh, do occur. But dynamics plays certainly an important role there. There generally seems to be a focus of, of error in malignancies of, uh, of the blood, so either in, in diagnosis also as you mentioned a couple of times, tracking of minimal residual disease. Why do you think this is? So why this focus? Is it because it's simply just a low-hanging fruit and the samples are easy there and somehow a logical step to look at the receptors in, in these things or other other things that plays a role in this? Yeah, I think it's, it's probably a combination of things you mentioned. It is... Uh, to, to a certain extent, certainly low-hanging fruit because the samples are more easily available because you can simply take some blood and and and, and uh, analyze what's there. Um, so I think that's a clear advantage. Um, the other thing, of course, is that uh, by definition, um, lymphoid malignancies have these markers. Uh, whereas if if you would uh, extend such air analysis to solid tumors, you would 
uh, not so much uh, look into the um, uh, the tumors itself, but rather in the uh, the immune um, environment, uh, which also could be very uh, informative. And I think there's more and more evidence also there that um, in the context of newer therapies, um, where checkpoint inhibition is being used or CAR T therapies, that it's very important to understand how good the uh, the T cell uh, immunity is. And one of the readouts for that could be to study the, for example, TCR repertoire um, to to have an idea of how successful certain uh, therapeutic choices might uh, might be. So I think it's it's probably indeed the low hanging fruit that made it um, uh, easier to study those uh, malignancies first. But I think you can expand um, on those concepts and and start looking at um, and other uh, malignancies as well. And and we also started with leukemias more than lymphomas, and that also has to do with the, the circulation of those leukemic cells in the blood, uh, and lymphomas often being more restricted to um, nodal areas in the lymph nodes or, or, or other extranodal areas in, 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 in tissues. Um, so also there, the, the excess of the samples has hampered the, the progress um, a bit. But nowadays, I think with the cell-free DNA options one uh, one has, it could be interesting to um, also look into plasma DNA and, and study even nodal processes uh, based on, um, on on blood plasma in terms of um, of these uh, BCR TCR sequences. So you've been working with air sequencing in 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 clinical settings for quite some times. Um, what Aha moments have you had of in these in this in these years in this time that you've been working? Hard moments. Um, uh, well, not hard. Aha uh, moments. Oh, a hot moment. Oh, okay. Uh, eureka moment. Yeah, yeah, I understand. That's quite different from hard moment. Indeed, I also I also had hard moments, by the way. But um, so um, hot moments, eureka moments. Um, I think there was already in the very early days uh, with this Biomed um, consortium um, because we, we really, I think at that point, did something uh, different by um, having a much more complete set of primers that, that was much more... Um, no, not so much sensitive, but uh, the coverage of those uh, primers together in the combinations. You only not only targeted the heavy chain, but also the light chain. Not only uh, gamma chain of TCR, but also uh, beta chain. Um, that really made a big difference to what was available, and and so has um, really um, I think supported the diagnostic community in an enormous way. And actually, those essays that we at that time developed have, have also become the world standard for diagnostics um, in the uh, low throughput uh, times. So with, uh, with with fragment analysis or gene scan analysis as readout. Um, and I think that, that was one of the most um, interesting and, and rewarding moments um, in, in that period. Um, and in the same way, I think we've been working along that same line, trying to improve uh, working on um, uh, next generation sequencing assays. Uh, and also there we've been um, successful in delivering um, assays, I think, that 
that are also very useful uh, nowadays to uh, to a broader community. So um, yeah, uh, history has repeated itself in that sense, I think, and um, and uh, and also after this uh, this this new standardization effort that we did in, in the NGS working group, uh, I think we've come really to the same point. So. Which obstacles then do you see in bringing the air sequencing even further into to the clinic in, in general, not, so not just for, for blood malignancies, but um, in general? Um, well, I think technically there's a lot already possible um, because many protocols have been quite well standardized and, and, uh, and there's good uh, um, procedures there. I think the obstacles would probably be more in, in data interpretation, in correct um, informatic pipelines, um, in calling um, clonotypes uh, very accurately, uh, those kind of things. I think um, the air community uh, has several efforts that, um, that are in this direction as well, and, and in our working group we are also concentrating on that more and more. So um, technically a lot is possible, but um, if you start using it, you, you need to make sure that uh, also data interpretation is, is robust and accurate. Um, and I think there's the, the big challenges now um, in, in further bringing this to, to clinical uh, practice. Do you see any standards I'm missing to, to bring this? So, so you've done a lot of work for um, to standardize the, the, the biological assays, but do you then see some sort of, of standardization missing in terms of, of the data analysis and how would one go about doing this? Yeah, I think the main aspect that uh, is probably, probably still to be um, completed is the, um, uh, the, the, the data interpretation, especially uh, guidelines for doing that, so that um, in translating that into clinical decision making, that we know that if this is performed anywhere in the world, it would result in the same um, result, first of all, and that is quite well covered by having standardized assays, but also that um, um, researchers or uh, scientists that uh, interpret these data, that they um, follow certain principles, uh, recommendations, guidelines, whatever you want to call it, um, that um, make this re reproducible um, so that, that it's done in the same way uh, for every patient. I think there's the main challenge at the moment. Um, you, you mentioned that uh, error sequencing is uh, starting to become an accepted um, endpoint for CLL and uh, multiple myeloma. Um, is the European um, regulatory agencies, are they participating or, or at least trying to harmonize um, the, the types of assays and the analysis, the biomechanical analysis that you spoke of? Um, yes, to some extent, um, and some of these trials in which this is uh, uh, evaluated are, of course, international trials, so also FDA plays a role here, uh, but I think there's indeed um, pharmaceutical trials that um, have used also CLL uh, MRD as a surrogate endpoint for, um, for outcome, 
and in that way help to um, to understand the uh, relative benefits of new uh, therapies or combination therapies over uh, old ones. Um, so that concept is quite well accepted in, in certain um, registration files that, that have already taken place. I think the, the main challenge now in the uh, CLL field is to transform um, MRG from a surrogate endpoint into a actionable uh, measurement so that, um, of course, first to be evaluated in trials as well, but finally in clinical practice for individual patients in the real world, uh, we know how to act on certain residual levels of, of the cells uh, in terms of uh, stopping treatment or uh, continuing treatment or, or intensifying treatment. Well, thank you. This brings us to the end of the third episode of On Air, the podcast of the AIR community with a special focus on clinical use of adaptive immune receptor repertoires. This podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. Any questions or comments, drop us a line at onair at aircommunity.org. That's O-N-A-I-R-R at A-I-R-R hyphen community.org. Or tweet us using the hashtag onair. That's with two R's. Thank you for talking with us, Tan. It was a real pleasure having you. It was my pleasure as well. Thank you. The podcast will return in one month's time with more thoughts on the clinical use of um, air sequencing. And uh, we have an announcement, actually, for the first time in this podcast series because the air community uh, will meet. And it's a sixth meeting of the air community uh, that will take place in May in La Jolla and the organizers have put together a very exciting program so head over to the website of the Antibody Society so that's antibodysociety.org or just click on the link which will be present in the um, show notes for this episode to get more information um, for, about the program and um, registration for for the meeting the podcast is edited by Abdul Aziz of the hilarious podcast Spout Law Thank you for listening to On Air.